Hello everyone, I'm Hannah Cornwell and welcome to Perspectives, the School of History and Cultures podcast, which is a community endeavour where we want to showcase the diversity of thinking and approaches to scholarship within our school, but also within the wider community and institution of the university. Today I am joined by my fabulous colleague Michelle Cressfield from History. Hello Michelle. Hello Hannah, I'm so happy to be back. I'm so glad you're back and today we are joined by Stacey Kennedy. Stacey, welcome. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your research? Thank you. Um, it's great to, to talk to you today. Um, I'm Stacey Kennedy. I'm a PhD researcher within the School of History and Culture, um, and my research sits within the Anthropology and African Studies Department, but it also delves quite substantially uh, across into art history. And I aim to work in an interdisciplinary way between these, uh, these two areas to meet the historical challenges, as well as the tremendous possibilities which um, are offered by studying African contemporary art across two different disciplines. Fantastic. I'm so all for interdisciplinary approaches and the sort of different perspectives and insights that can offer. What within that have you currently been specifically focusing on? Is there any particular material within the university that is your sort of main focus? Well, my research focuses on women working in the Nigerian contemporary art scene. So I'm specifically looking at female artists and the many highly successful and high profile women who are involved in running this art scene internationally. This came about because of my interest before I returned to academia. I spent my career in the commercial arts as well as the not for profit art sector within the UK. And I'd become well aware of issues around gender disparity, uh, which plagued the art world in the UK. But my interest in contemporary art from Africa took me to events such as the one in 54 Art Fair in London. And interestingly, this revealed to me a site of visible female success. So within the international contemporary African art world, which is a kind of nebulous term in itself, within the spaces that, that this world, this art world inhabits, uh, women are there, you know, they're founding and directing art fairs, art galleries, art institutions, and they're working as successful and high profile artists and curators internationally uh, within the African continent and across the diaspora. To me, this seemed at odds with the negative experiences of women in the Euro-American art world with which I was familiar. So I decided to pursue this topic. So this is the topic that I'm, that I'm currently researching for my PhD. I really look at Nigerian female art networks and women's agency within the contemporary art world more broadly. And I really want to highlight in my research a narrative of, of female success. That's great. And I find it really interesting that you've come to your field of study from your experiences outside academia. And I think that offers really interesting different perspectives from those of us who've sort of perhaps stayed in academia and haven't experienced other sort of ideas and uh, other spaces. But I'm also curious to hear more about what particular material you've been using from the university's collections, perhaps in relation to, to your project. Yes, so I actually come back to Birmingham University from my undergraduate days. So I was here in the late 1990s, studied in the African Studies Department, or uh, Centre of West African Studies, as it was called then, and the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies. So I was really inspired to come to Birmingham at that time by the work of uh, academics like Stuart Hall and also Karen Barber in the Centre of West Africa. African studies. So at that time, I was very aware of the Danford collection, which we worked with in the Centre of West African Studies in a really um, hands-on and practical way. So um, we learned about the material culture of West Africa through academic work, teachers such as Professor Karen Barber, who I've mentioned. 
so as part of my PhD research, I was quite interested in reconnecting with this collection and kind of looking at it through different eyes. So I'm obviously studying contemporary women and the contemporary art world. And it was very interesting to me to kind of go back and look at the collection through these kind of revised lens and different questions about the collection other than the questions that we perhaps asked around the art objects back in the late 1990s. I think some people listening to this might be familiar with the Danford collection. I, I know of it vaguely, but I must confess not knowing actually that much about it. So I think it would be really helpful for us if you could actually explain to us what the Danford collection is and perhaps a little bit about its history and as you've already illustrated a little bit, how it's been used within the school from a teaching and research perspective. Yeah, so the Danford, it's called the Danford Collection of um, African Art and Artifacts. And there's over 500 items that sit within the collection. Some of them are displayed in what's called the Danford Room in the Arts Building. You may have seen that. I've taught in there a few times, but I've, I, I have to confess not to really have spent time learning about them. So I'm very glad you're here to tell us about them. Yes, well, they sit behind the glass cases in the Danford Room. Beside what's in there, there's also a huge collection which is held in the research and cultural collections department. So yes, yeah, so to investigate the collection further I was awarded some funding from the Midlands Four Cities who fund my PhD research through the Arts and Humanities Research Council and they awarded me a research grant to undertake a month's placement with the Danford collection. So I was kind of working across the two sites of the collection. It's difficult in some ways to talk um, about the collection without making unhelpful classifications. So if we call something art or artifact, it's kind of problematic in itself because we're making value judgments uh, on the nature of the, of the material and the object. But if I just loosely um, kind of try and explain what's actually in there, there are items which we could call domestic utensils or furniture. So things like calabash containers, woven baskets, there's musical instruments, clothing, footwear, textiles, tapestry, children's dolls, mats, axes, napkin rings, teapots, pipes, it's all sorts of things like that. There's items which relate to work, so there's weaving equipment, looms, spindles, gold weights, the ceremonial and decorative objects, so there's uh, a collection of wooden stools, there's masks, animal sculptures, bells, bracelets, uh, glass beads, helmets, lots of different items there. Um, and then of particular interest to my own research, there are paintings on canvas or board um, in watercolour or oil. Um, I think there's pencil drawings as well. Um, and there are photographs and there's archival material. So for my own research, the painted works with, that sit within the collection are of particular interest because my, my research focuses on Nigeria and there are some really beautiful um, and very interesting paintings in the Danford collection by Nigerian modernist artists such as Ben Wongwu, Yusuf Griot, Uchi Keke, and Clara Ogbodaga Ngu, who I would hopefully like to talk about as well in a bit. I can tell you a bit about the history of the Danford collection as well. So the collection is named after John Danford who served as a regional director for the British Council based in Ibadan in Western Nigeria between the mid-1940s uh, until 1957. Danford was an artist himself and he became a celebrated arts administrator. Um, he was awarded an OBE in 1953. And during his time in Nigeria, he built up a large private collection of art, most of which he purchased or commissioned directly from contemporary working artists. And that's quite important to remember that he was buying, he was a patron of the art, so he was buying this art. 
When he left Nigeria in 1964, the collection moved to the Centre of West African Studies and Birmingham University purchased the collection from his family after his death in 1975. This was supported by the Cadbury Trust, John Cadbury and the Victoria and Albert Purchase Grant Fund. Until recently, the collection um, has held Danford's name, um, although in the future, I do believe the collection is going to be referred simply as the African Collection. But if you want to find out more about the collection, it's quite good to go and have a look at the website because there is a lot of work being done revisiting and reinterpreting and re-understanding the collection by the team in the Research and Cultural Collections Department. And they're always really happy to answer questions. So you can always email them if you want more information as well. Thanks, Stacey. That's really helpful information for anyone listening and who wants to learn more. It was really interesting that you stressed the point that Danford was commissioning and buying and what I say about at least part of the collection and how it's come to us and how it was acquired. You also obviously mentioned that the collection is being renamed, so it's not exclusive to Dan or associated with him. Is that because the collection has grown since his contribution, as it were, in the university's acquirement of of his collection? Yes, I think it's part of a re-evaluation of the, of the collection. I mean, in my own research, I was interested to discover that the collection has grown very substantially since, um, obviously, since his initial donation. Um, and actually now, the database records that well over half of the collection had been donated by four the following four women. And those women were Sister Evelyn Bellamy, Elnora Ferguson, Marion Johnson and Professor Lalaji Bone. So really the Danford collection is, you know, the name is quite historical and perhaps it did need a, an update. But as my research focuses on women, those were the, the people I wanted to investigate within the collection anyhow. So the, the history of Danford, I mean, there's so much material, there's so much you could look at around the Danford collection and his own history and the way that the, the collection initially got put together. You know, there's a wealth of material there. But for my own research, I wanted to look at, at the women in the collection and, and really ask, you know, where are where are the women in the Danford collection? How, how does the Danford collection speak about gender? That's a great question. And one I'd like to ask you, ask you now, what did your research come up with in relation to that question? There's obviously there was the four women um, who had donated to the collection. So that was kind of my initial um, starting point was to look at their biography and see what information I could find about them. So I can talk about the research around two of those women. I only had a month placement, so I couldn't, I couldn't investigate everybody fully. But I did manage to uncover some quite interesting information about um, Sister Bellamy and Professor Bone. Sister Bellamy was mainly uh, through archival material, so the Danford collection itself has uh, boxes of archival material, which I was obviously able to investigate, and also the Cadbury Research Library um, has several boxes of really, really interesting and rich information about her life. So that was how I approached her through the archive. And then Lala J. Bone, I was interested to discover, was still alive, age 93. Um, and I was able to actually go and interview her in person, which was which was a really fantastic opportunity to speak to her directly and collect the oral narrative of, you know, one of these women who had donated to the collection. What came out of the conversations with, with her? So I was interested in, in investigating the, the women um, donors to the collection through the objects within the collection. And there was three really exciting items which um, Professor Brown had donated to the collection. First was a cotton textile cloth, which was made to celebrate Nigerian independence. This was made in the federal open prison in Kaduna in northern Nigeria. 
It was made on a man's uh, narrow loom. Uh, the cloth comprises 14 strips of fawn spun cloth decorated with white rayon weft-facing patterns, which read Nigerian Independence, October 1960, in a repeat pattern. And this is a really fascinating and very striking material, and I really wanted to find out more about how Professor Bone had acquired this material and how it had ended up with us at the university. The second item that she donated was a stunning woven textile cloth, really fascinating and interesting cloth, which is made of shot silk. It kind of changes colour depending on where the light is hitting it. So when I first um, took this, this material out of the box and, and had a look at it, it appeared green and blue. But as the light changes, it takes on a kind of reddy brown hue. This is because the, the warp is made of the green and the blue and, and the red, the, the weft is made of red crimson. So the material shines out in different colours and it's a very, very interesting piece of material. It's brightly decorated with tortoises, combs, spiders, crocodile anchors, leaves and, and other motifs. I believe it came from the Volta region of Ghana from the early 1950s. Um, and the third item, which was of interest, was a black and red leather amulet case with a tooled pattern ridge on the lid and a white and black twisted leather thong. This is actually on display in the, in the Danford room. So you may have seen it, but you may have missed it because there's lots of objects in there. Um, and this came from uh, Borku, which is in the upper east region of northern Ghana on the border with Burkina Faso um, and Togo. And again, this is recorded as coming from there in the early 1950s. So when I met with Professor Bowen, we talked about these items and given that this was 50, 60 years ago that she'd accumulated these items, her recollections were really spot on and, and very sharp and she could tell me a lot of information about her time in Ghana, Nigeria and within different um, African countries. She was born in 1927 in London. Her mother was very forward-thinking and pushed for equal education for her sons and daughters. So she went to Cheltenham Ladies College and then she studied at Somerville College at Oxford University between 1945 and 1948. And she tells me that at that time there were only 600 women among the 6,000 undergraduates um, who were her contemporaries. She says that she felt very privileged to be one of these women at that time and that in her this fostered a growing determination that whatever she did in her life, it would be something to enhance the status of women. So this kind of growing political consciousness from a young age developed in her and she said she describes herself as having a pretty socialist view of the world. Therefore, when she was at New College, she joined the debating society. She was very involved in politics and in debating, um, and she was exposed to a very international and politically conscious group. She met individuals such as Tony Benn uh, and other international figures. At this time, she decided she wanted to work in adult education, and she particularly wanted to work to do something to promote the status or to help improve uh, the lot of women in the world. Thomas Hodgkinson was her supervisor and at the time he was working with the colonial office to set up extramural institutions in the new universities in West Africa. So when the University College of the Gold Coast in Ghana initiated their own extramural department in 1949, now called the Institute of Adult Education, she was interviewed for the post. She gained the post, she gained the, the job there. She went out to Ghana, aged 22, traveling through Senegal overland, uh, and then began her work there. And then throughout her life, really, she worked in extramural education in Ghana, Nigeria, Zambia, and I think Uganda as well. 
in Ghana, she mixed with politicians. So this was in her early days. So she had these socialist leanings and she describes feeling that she felt there was a great sense of injustice, that countries should not be colonized and they should be free to run their own affairs. And she mixed with politicians and she was part of lots of anti-colonial movements um, and movements towards decolonization within the countries where she worked. So she mixed with politicians such as Kwani Nkrumah in Ghana, and she describes her time there as it was so, she says it was so active. Ghana at this time was fizzing with the moves towards regaining independence. The political elite at that time was made up of women and men. And she returned to Accra from the Volta region where she was working every two weeks to work particularly with a group of women who wanted to advance their political careers. Uh, within the formal structure, there were women in senior service positions long before there were in Britain. And Professor Bones cites Elizabeth Ecom Ferguson, um, who was a supervisor in the telephone exchange in the 1890s when she was paid the same wage as men. She says Ghana was forward thinking in a way that Britain wasn't. In the 1890s, women certainly weren't earning the same wages as men in Britain. Although she mixed with the political elite, she talked passionately of her desire to live alongside the communities in which she worked. And it was an absolute priority for her to understand the requirements of the local people um, and shape her teaching and her work effectively according to their needs or wants. Sounds like she's had an incredibly interesting career. What prompted her to donate these items to, to the university? So I asked her about how she'd come by the items. And as I said, it was obviously a long time ago and, and she could but she could pretty much remember the items and, and where she'd um where she'd how she'd come by them. So I asked her, did you buy the things that you found? Um were they interesting to you? How did you come by the items and why did you donate them to the center? And she said, I had already given the center some Ghanaian bracelets and things. I'm not a collector. People gave me things or perhaps I liked something or wanted to use something. So I bought it. It gave me a reminder of where I had been. Uh, then she talks about the cloth. So I asked her particularly about the Nigerian independence cloth. She said, I got that at independence. It was made in the prison, the federal prison in the north. Uh, Billy Dudley, I think this is one of her colleagues, uh, was our tutor in Zaria. And he was a political scientist up there in the north. We had been up and we had run a course for the community development office. And at the end of it, they presented me with the cloth. Being in the community, they had access to the prisons. The cloth was made by the prisoners. And then she says, a lot of my stuff, it's things that people gave me and I loved it and valued it very much. And then it's the same story with the other items. So the Ghanaian bracelets, she says, the beaded bracelets were made by local women. They were given to me when I left the village. They meant good luck to me for my journey ahead. Uh, and then the amulet. So I mentioned the red and black amulet case, which was from the north in Bolku. She says of the amulet case, Bolku was an amazing place right on the border in the far north. We used to run adult education courses up there. The bishop had walked to Algeria across the Sahara Desert. I think the bishop she refers to here is from the White Fathers. I went to Ghana in 1949 and met him in 1950. For 40 years, he had been in Navarongo in the north. And he was very well respected and had lived a good life. He had set up primary schools, secondary schools and the teacher training college in Navrongo. He gave me the amulet, which had been given to him by one of his congregation. He said he wanted me to think of the north when I went back south. Although it was an Islamic item, he was that kind of human being. There were no prejudices with him. He had all sorts of friends and people in his congregation. 
So quite an interesting take on um, things that came to her, which she, she wasn't collecting and she wasn't buying. So the things that, that are in the collection from Professor Bone are or were gifted to her from people that she worked with. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's a very different way of things being acquired that have ended up in a collection than things I'm used to as a, as a classicist and ancient historian. Things have been acquired through other means which are far less personal and have not been given in that same sense. I want to say, so you mentioned earlier on the sort of your interest in the collection around gender and, and where the place of particularly women and particularly female artists were in the collection. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. You mentioned an artist you might like to talk about uh, in terms of, of their work. And actually, I suppose my question is, you've given us an insight into where we can find female donors in the collection, but what sort of space is there within the collection to study actual female artists and producers of these items? So the four uh, donors that I mentioned, they're white Western women. Um, and I'm really aware that I'm in my own position as a, a white Western researcher is kind of centering the voices of these white Western women who collected at the time. And, you know, it's really important when we look at collections that we analyse or that we think about how the collections are interpreted and presented. Um, and that brings up questions of ownership, control and power, really. Obviously, there's lots and lots of conversations happening around museum collections and who are the rightful owners of such objects especially things that were collected obviously under the framework of colonialism and under the legacy of colonialism. So I'm kind of interested in asking who controls, who controls these narratives. And even though I'm bringing women's voices to the story, which have been in some ways sidelined, it's still really one side of the story. It's still a, a kind of one-sided relationship of power. So for me, the more interesting question is, is where are the, the Nigerian women's voices or where are the Ghanaian women's voices? within the Danford collection and how do we bring those, those voices out through these objects. There's a whole discussion around objects and the naming of objects, which I could go into, but would probably be far too long for the podcast, in terms of the way that art has been classified, which I touched on earlier, but also in terms of the problematics of labelling art, often assigning a tribal or kind of ethnographic identity to artwork, which serves not only to, well, it doesn't disclose anything about the creator of the object. So in many ways, it denigrates the object to a lesser status than we would attribute to artwork which is created in the West, which we would maybe call fine art or high art, which is pretty much the Renaissance art canon. So this is a problematic that, um, that African art is often kind of primitivized in this way when you assign a group identity. So I was really interested in trying to find uh, narratives of named women, because I think that when you name something, you, you give that agency. So the one particularly interesting artwork within the collection is a painting by a Nigerian modernist woman called Clara Ogbodaga Ngu. And my research touches on the Nigerian female modernists who were so important in the, in the movement or in the time where post-colonial uh, modernist artworks were being created in Nigeria. And nationalist stories are or tend to be linked with men or nationalist narratives tend to be centering men and the art history of Nigeria at that time is no different so women were present women were creating artwork then but they tend to be sidelined so for Birmingham University to have a painting by this really important female Nigerian modernist for me was very exciting and it is a hugely important piece of artwork so 
Clara Obadoga Engu was alive between 1921 and 1996. The painting in the collection is a, an abstract work, which I believe she painted around 1960. And it's an oil painting on hardboard. And it's a really very interesting, very beautiful artwork. Her history, her biography is fascinating. She studied at Chelsea Art School. And after her studies in the UK, she went back to Nigeria, where she became the only Nigerian artist, female or otherwise, on the teaching staff at NCAS between 1955 and 1958. As a teacher, she was really hugely important and influential. And this is often the part of her biography, which is kind of overlooked and written out of out of art history, the influence that she had on the next generation of upcoming artists was really profound. She went further than merely encouraging and training these artists. She supported scholarly artistic interests and also she worked on academic adaptation of local talents and the development of new canons. So she was really kind of bringing together the development of a new visual language, which is really important when we assess modernisms which aren't always focusing on the Euro-American canon. We know now that there, are, there was a plurality of modern, modernisms happening around the world. So she became a key figure in the training and development of the avant-garde group of young leading Nigerian contemporary artists who went on to form the Zaria Art Society. And these were such important, acclaimed and, and really key figures in the uh, Nigerian art history. And she was one of the teachers and she helped them develop this new visual language which they were creating. So her place in art history is really fundamental. She taught drawing and she carried on painting as an artist herself, but unfortunately many of her paintings or her artistic output have been lost to history. We don't know where they are. So yeah, so this, this artwork is, is very exciting for me in the collection. And it's very lucky then that we we have one of her, her artworks if the rest have, as you say, been sort of lost in history. Whereabouts is, is the painting available for people to see? Um, at the moment, I think it's out. It's in an exhibition, which I think perhaps is in Germany. So um, because it's such a key work, it's often loaned out. So it is out at the moment mm. and it's being kind of re-evaluated uh, and, and revisited and within the context of a global modernism. So I think the exhibition it's, it's out in is uh, an exhibition which looks at global modern histories and kind of carries out, you know, more of that really important work to look at the modernist movement as it was happening across the globe, not just through the kind of the angle that we normally look, what was happening in Europe and America. When it is back in Birmingham, it's not sort of obviously on permanent display, but is it within the collections? I think you could probably go view it or hopefully they'll hang it somewhere within the university. It's, it's, it also sounds very much like it would be really nice to have in, in information about the artist uh, somewhere permanently whether it's you know on, on a blog or something it just sounds such a, such an interesting history and an insight into someone who as you've outlined is so important to a particular artistic movement through one particular piece that we have. Michelle is there anything that you want to um to ask Stacey about? Yeah I think you did a really great job of thinking through kind of how you're navigating that as a person um, which I find really interesting. I was just wondering wanting you to speak a little bit more about like what you think these networks of both kind of like female artists but also collectors in what ways is this illuminating for you and what do you see as the potentiality here of this kind of research path? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is kind of break down this distinction between modern, contemporary um, and the kind of the problematic way in which things are often seen as well, defined by pre-colonial, colonial, post-colonial post -colonial in the art world. To me, it's important to situate 
networks, to see how things influence each other. So some of the objects in the collection have got really global um, histories of movement. So there's, a, there's some interesting material which was made in India and then came to Ghana, which was bought by Sister Bellamy, who was the other collector that I was going to talk about, but we probably are not going to have time. For me, it's interesting that the movement of objects and people and how those networks branch out from African countries and, and, and also come back in. And it's important to think of the movement of these objects as representing a covial Africa. So breaking down these ideas of, of what is modern and what is contemporary and saying that, you know, artwork is contemporary when it's happening. There's no idea that we are more contemporary or that Euro-American art history is more contemporary. So for me, the interesting thing is looking at contemporary artwork myself and then situating that within these kind of this modernist legacy, these modernist networks which were being set up, um, which are now built upon by the women, the very successful and high profile women who I'm interviewing for my research today, how they connect with that legacy and with that history. And there's some, also some really interesting things that can be kind of drawn out. So I've been interviewing an artist called Nengi Omoku, who works in Lagos, a really, a really fantastic artist. And she works on a material called Sanyan, which is a Nigerian material. And it's an antique material. And I was really interested to find that this material, this, there's lots of examples of this material in the Danford collection or in the African collection, as it's now called. So it was really interesting for me. I visited her studio in Lagos and I saw how she primes these canvases. So she makes the Sanyan material into a canvas by applying this, this kind of primer. And then she paints on the material and it's a beautiful material which is made from, um, it's spun from the silk from a, a moth cocoon and it's a really fantastic material with sort of holes in it. And she keeps the material, she's very true to the material, she keeps it as it is, paints the primer on and then paints her images over the cloth so the holes show through and you can still see the texture and the kind of materiality of the cloth. So for me really it's making those kind of linkages between what an artist is doing today and how do we see that history, how do we read that history uh, within the objects that are in the collection. Those are the kind of connections that I'm, I'm interested in making and kind of through, through the lens of women. So how do contemporary female artists, how do we rationalise, how do we understand or conceptualise what they're doing today with what women were doing before and how do we find out what women were doing before? Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for that. Are there any, you know, last kind of thoughts that you want to share with the listeners about, you know, either the Danford room or kind of things that they might be thinking about? I think it's so important for them, the students, but also the, you know, members of our, our soon to be very large audience um, to hear, you know, some of the, the kind of great potential of this collection as well um, but yeah any last thoughts well I suppose to just to give a kind of final few thoughts I've tried to draw out the um, the kind of the problematics that can be around collections such as this problematics of myself and my own research the legacy the problematic legacies of art history and anthropology and African studies the disciplines come with their own inherent issues but I kind of really want to draw the draw out the potential of studying the collection in a different way and the importance really of looking at the collection in a different way um, so for me you know a decolonization colonized history um, is about multiple narratives so I'm starting with women and then I'm asking but you know what about other women 
And so to me, it's about bringing in different voices and different perspectives. I think we have to acknowledge the legacy of empire and the inheritance of empire, despite the, you know, the, the difficulties of doing that. And so therefore we have to read archives and collections such as the African collection or the Danford collection um, in different ways. We have to, to read them in ways which illuminate new stories. We have to read against the grain and we have to ask whose voices are missing. And I've only just kind of touched touched on that here and you know there's, there's lots more work that needs to be done it's important work and it should be done and for me this is about updating the historical record so this is about confronting the past this isn't about erasing it it's just about you know we've got this collection of fantastic items you know let's talk about them let's explore them and, and let's nuance them and there's often calls you know that objects um, have been looted have been taken should be should be given back we, we can complicate that conversation when we look at um, a story like professor bones so she was given these items in good faith and you can say well of course that was under a colonial or imperial structure but it kind of it in some ways complicates the conversation um, when we look at the objects themselves and, and let them speak um, in a certain way um, and I think that they're really kind of unsettling the idea of these colonial spaces um, is something that we have to do and collections and historical narratives can, can kind of provide that unsettling so I think that's that's what for me that's what's important I think that's what's brilliant about the Danford collection that the works are there we should bring them out we should talk about them um, and we should kind of um, revise revise art history or put art history into context um, into the present day. Thank you very much for that. And I think this is a really great start to having a kind of bigger conversation about the Danford collection because it has been really big here at UOB. It's been a really um, kind of politicized part of these kinds of calls to decolonize history. I think this is an important aspect of that conversation. But as you said, um, there's lots more work to do there and lots more conversations to be had about the kind of um, the, the very nature of the collection. But I do think that your work is really important in terms of giving giving us a kind of fuller accounting of, of the kind of provenance of that collection. And so a really important voice as we kind of further that debate. So thank you very much for being here with us today. I love that sort of concept you ended on about unsettling. I think that's something that we are trying to do with partly with this podcast is to have conversations that do unsettle or perhaps make us feel uncomfortable. And that's part of the process and important. And I've also importantly learned a new perspective on the Danford collection, which is that it's not the Danford collection, it's the African collection or soon to be, which again is interesting in terms of it being reframed. So thank you so much, Stacey. I think you've given us a really interesting insight into this collection and the ways that we can move forward with it, unsettling its history, but also uncovering, I think you mentioned before, narratives of named women and using this, the, this collection to explore not just female collectors, but then also what the objects themselves might tell us about female artists. Thank you very much. I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to this. I have certainly learned a lot about the collection uh, and ways forward.